Hello and welcome to this episode of Invest Africa Insights. In 2020, the African Development Bank and the Frexen Bank conducted a study of the last decade of trade finance in Africa. They found that the average trade finance gap over the last 10 years sat at about $81 billion. This shortfall obviously severely limits the continent's capacity to export and to drive growth through trade. Risk perception, creditworthiness, fragmented supply chains, and ever more stringent regulation have all been um, posited as contributing to this quite significant gap. But now with digitalization facilitating access to formal finance across the continent and the African Continental Free Trade Agreement set to boost regional trade, there's a real opportunity for commercial banks to begin to step in to really address some of this shortfall. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Tabo Makoko, Managing Director, Transactional Banking, African Regional Operations at ABSA Group. Tabo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so, Tabo, we're really here today to talk about some of the, the new opportunities that are coming out in transactional banking and, and trade finance. And obviously, I've sort of set the scene a little there at, at the start around sort of what the what the size of the gap is, but I suppose in some ways also the size of the prize as well, um, if you think about it a little differently. Um, so it'd be great to start us off, actually, to just get your sort of macro view, really, um, as you're looking at the landscape of why is it so hard for African businesses to get access to trade finance? What are the reasons that those applications are sort of falling short? It's an interesting question. Thank you. And once again, I'm glad to be here. I think you, you, you've summarized it well, but, uh, in the range between 66 and $82 billion uh, remains unfinanced, uh, uh, particularly um, when you are thinking about the African continent, only 40% on average uh, is actually financed by banks, which means the 66% of trade, 60% of trade that is happening is you know either funded through the individuals themselves, the companies themselves. So it, it kind of puts a bit of a strain if you can think about it, the working capital and and uh, and the needs of, of of companies to facilitate trade. Um, and when we analyze some of the challenges, I mean, there's some good reports that share some of the challenges. But I think what is quite clear is about 42 percent of the reason is the credit worthiness of the applicant. Now, credit worthiness uh, comes in two ways. One is uh, I, as a financial institution, understanding your business better in order for me to make informed decisions about the risks that I'm taking. Right. Um, and that concept of uh, you know, understanding your business is led by data, data and key insights that I need to be there. Some organizations, particularly the likes of SMEs, may or may not have invested in, uh, in the appropriate data to make it available for a financial institution like ourselves to make the appropriate decisions. Larger corporations tend to invest a lot in their data and explaining their business and building the expertise around how best to uh, make a financial institution understand the risk that they'll be taking. But perhaps smaller organizations don't have that uh, capacity to do so. But I think the, the most important thing that comes to the table is credit worthiness, right? That's sitting at 2%. There are other things to, to look at, for instance, 
you know, as a bank, I may have a limit to how much I can expose my capital to a particular sector, to a particular client type, to a particular industry. So the single obligo limit is one of the key things that also drives um, rejection of trade finance applications. Um, and then obviously, uh, particularly 2020, um, there were some balance sheet constraints. COVID had a bit of an impact uh, in terms of banks' ability to extend loans at a rapid pace. Um, you know, um, fearing for unknown scenarios as banks, we were a little bit more conservative around our capital. Uh, we restricted uh, growth in certain areas, particularly explorative ideas, but we were there for customers that already had facilities, already had businesses that needed a little bit more help. So the balance sheet constraint can be one of the things that we look at. So for me, I would, in order of priority, I'd say credit worthiness of uh, the applicant. And in that bucket, I also want to include the fact that as a bank, we carry, let's say, charges uh, based on the risk profile of our portfolio. The more our portfolio is regarded to be highly at risk, highly risky, the more charges we will incur, and therefore that starts to impact on our profitability. So credit worthiness is a very important uh, topic because it does have an influence even on credit worthiness, followed by, as I said, the single obligor limit, and lastly, uh, elements around balance construct. And so if we just talk a little more then about that issue of credit worthiness, you know, it's sort of the heart of, of some of the challenge here. So d from your perspective, is it a sort of structural issue um, that applicants don't, you know, sort of are not credit worthy or they don't have the collateral or something like that? Or is it actually more to do with lack of access to enough information about them to be able to make that assessment? It's a good question. Let's say the traditional methods of assessing risk required you to have the appropriate collateral, uh, you know, to be able to demonstrate through a traditional methods that you will be able to repay your trade loan at a particular point in time. Um, now, for organizations at the beginning part of their journey, like SMEs, they may not necessarily have the appropriate collateral. They need you as a bank to step in, which means we need non-traditional data points to help ourselves understand the kind of risk that we are taking and how to go about doing that. And if you look at some of the interesting programs that are coming through, uh, you know, receivables financing, supplier financing programs, these are programs that are engineered because they've understood that the SME specifically may not necessarily have what is required for us to extend a loan. But when we look at the um, the flow of the goods or the flow of the money, we can realize quickly that actually we, we know the supplier that is giving you the goods and we know the buyer on the other end is buying the goods from you. So with this information and understanding the flow, we can start to take calculated decisions on our risk. So it's about moving from traditional uh, approaches of evaluating risk to non-traditional data-led approaches to evaluating the risk. And actually, you know, one of the, the interesting um, things that the Frexen Bank found when they were sort of doing their study of trade finance is that actually the, the default rates in trade finance is very low. 
as yeah. compared to, to some other transactions, it's a very, it's quite a low risk um, form of finance. So do you think actually that African trade finance has been sort of priced correctly in the market? Do you think the risk is being assessed correctly as to what is to African trade it's finance? It's a good question. I, I think it's an evolution. Uh, I think we're evolving towards getting to the right price uh, for, for the risk because, you know, when you look at, even if you look at the credit models that are being applied, sometimes they fail to take into consideration the underlying product performance. We tend to focus a lot on the, 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 the client where we're taking the risk, but I think a combination between traditional performance of, 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 of the product as well as the client, we may actually get to an adjusted view of risk because I think uh, 20 basis points and below is probably the number that you're looking at the overall default rate, which is default rate, which is quite low, right? But I think what we need to do is make a, make sure that there's a healthy balance between the overall product um, um, risk as well as the client risk because you do need to cater for the client risk as well because um, the default rate of the client may be slightly higher based on maybe where they're performing. So therefore the probability of default might be slightly higher than, you know, I don't know, you know, British American Tobacco is a good example, right? Which is a well-established organization. So I think a combination of the two is important, but also the understanding of the risk will be quite important to make sure that the net result is a much more improved view of the actual risk for the clients. And now obviously we sort of couldn't be talking about this topic without mentioning some of the, the more recent developments, um, particularly around sort of COVID-19 and the more general um, crisis in supply chains and disruption in global supply chains, you know, an issue that doesn't just impact Africa, you know, global um, issue. So how much are you seeing that impact trade finance um, in Africa? Are we going to see the gap widen as a result of some of these disruptions, do you think? Look, I mean, I think COVID-19 uh, uh, had a significant impact. Borders were closed. Uh, you know, people were working from home. We couldn't send goods uh, from one part of the world to another. You know, when China shut down, it was even more difficult. When governments were reacting towards uh, the different strains, uh, that had a significant impact on just the free flow of goods and services and people. Um, we're seeing a lot of that start to normalize, but maybe it's, let's talk a little bit about how we saw the impact. The impact was quite significant, both on um, uh, our clients who had to sustain and run their businesses, uh, on banks and, and um, the constraints on the balance sheet they were experiencing, uh, and our overall perception of risk, because there were so many unknowns that we all erred to the side of being conservative. And naturally, when you become a little bit more conservative, it means um, those customers who perhaps may want to think about things, opportunities to go and grab in the market. Uh, as I said earlier, on more on the explorative side, we might uh, kind of say, look, let's kind of wait and or maybe ask for a little bit more detail. Uh, and but what we did as an organization, maybe just to add a little bit more detail, we immediately broke uh, our bank balance sheet into defensive and offensive. And on the defensive side, we said, what are the industries that are likely to find it difficult 
to survive under the circumstances. A case in point is tourism, uh, you know, uh, and, and many other similar ones. In hard lockdown, our retailers, the, the doors were closed. Um, uh, so, you know, people couldn't just walk to a shop and go and buy because everybody had to be at home. So there was a significant impact on what we clustered under the defensive sectors or the defensive part of our balance sheet. On the offensive side, we actually were a little bit more bullish. I mean, the online shopping world skyrocketed because all of us were now at home. And what I would typically be just as part of my routine, you know, I'd go to a particular mall and buy something. Now I couldn't. So I had to go online and buy all the things that I needed. So the online retail environment shot off the roof and continues to do so. So we needed to make sure that on the defensive side, we are responsible, making sure that our clients can survive the storm, but also we're not extending too much of the credit in an environment that perhaps might be a little bit constrained. On the offensive side, shifting balance sheet to help those customers who have a real growth um, opportunity aligned with the fact that the market itself is positioned to take advantage of that opportunity. But I, I don't want to create this, a rosy picture. It was tough. We were sitting in credit committee meetings and risk committee meetings every three days, trying to understand what is happening, taking uh, into um, our understanding lots of data that's coming through. Sometimes the data was a little bit exaggerated. Uh, some of the data was a little more accurate or understated. And so you had to sift through a lot of noise in uh, making the appropriate decisions for our organization, our customers, and our shareholders. But it was a tough period. And you can even see in the financial performance of the organization at the time, relative to our uh, trajectory of growth, you still slide blip. Uh, that represents the fact that we were a little bit conservative as an organization as we were trying to understand what is happening to our country and the rest of the world. You know, one of the things that's actually that's quite interesting looking at, at the issue of trade finance in Africa is that actually the, the gap itself was already widening before the pandemic. Um, hit that was already starting to happen, you know. And you mentioned there the sort of a conservative approach coming up against you, know, sort of or balancing that with a more sort of um, aggressive approach. So, speaking of conservatism, the new regulations that have been put in place, sort of globally, are often sort of brought up as one of the reasons why we might have been seeing the the trade finance gap widen again before the pandemic. Um, so what's your view on that? Is, is the regulation, you know, sort of anti-money laundering regulation and, and these things that, that exporters need to comply with, is it right for Africa? And how do, we, how do we help businesses align with it more easily so that they can take advantage of the opportunities? Yeah, good question. I think the KYC and trade-based money laundering, um, on the one hand, and some of the capital requirements on the other, there are important uh, uh, developments in making sure on the one hand, we all know what we're financing, why we're financing it, what is uh, involved in it, and we're not, we don't find ourselves financing terrorism activities or anything of that nature, or even corruption related. There's not only terrorism, but corruption uh, and many other ills out there. Uh, we need to be clear about how we are preventing, not facilitating. So I think there's value in some of those and most of those regulations that are coming through. Uh, but to your point, it does translate to a very important issue of uh, cost. As a financial institution, 
um, I have to adhere to both the capital requirements, um, i.e. understanding the risk that I'm taking and pricing for that risk. Uh, I need to be able to price for the risk as well as price for uh, some of the costs related to KYC and, and money laundering. In a scenario where you are not able to price for it, you have one, one, one or two options. One is look for clients where the risk profile is lower because that naturally reduces your risk-weighted assets as well as uh, some other costs and can improve your overall returns. Um, or you, you can move to do other business. But if you want to stay in this business, you have to understand that you need to look for ways to reduce your risk-weighted assets uh, allocation uh, while also making sure that you're reducing the cost of being compliant. And the only opportunity you have in both, uh, on the one hand, is um, automation, digitization, um, you know, making sure that all these checks and balances are embedded in the transaction, as opposed to running a separate process that now adds an additional cost dimension. So that's the one layer. On the understanding of risk and articulation of risk, we touched a little bit about some of those elements, but being able to understand the kind of risk that you're carrying and making sure also that you have a healthy portfolio between what you call lower risk grades of clients to higher risk grades of clients. You have to participate across the spectrum. But most importantly, also look at partnerships. So you've got a lot of development finance organizations and funder, funder organizations that want to participate, for instance, in SME. How are you going to work closely with them to make sure you reduce uh, the costs uh, that uh, as an organization you'd be in, incurring and therefore improving profitability? But if I want to summarize this point, and I, and I, and I like what you're saying here around regulation as well as some of the key things coming out. The, the net result is that when you book what is perceived to be higher risk transactions, it's going to cost you more. That cost, if you can't pass it on to the customer, it starts to impact on your returns. That starts to impact on how shareholders are evaluating your performance relative to your peers. So that sits at the heart of this problem. Uh, unless we solve for these two things appropriately, shareholders that you think, well, why should I invest in that organization? Because that other organization gives me a much better return. So it is a very sensitive topic um, and one that is at the heart of many conversations, many budget uh, rooms across the globe when it comes to this particular product. And I would imagine then that that, that sort of higher pricing um, of risk is something that falls a lot onto the SMEs really. Um, that is something that's harder for smaller companies to navigate in that case. True. So the SMEs, uh, so sometimes you actually don't have the capacity to translate that cost back to the SME because you know it's just not something that makes sense, right? So you have to make a lot of changes internally. And unless those changes exist, you might say, well, actually, it's much easier for me to go and, uh, and bank, uh, you know, I don't know, Chevron, Caltex, whatever, because I understand the risk, the, the lower rate, grade of risk, so it might be easier for me to do that than to go to SME. But I think the right answer, in my opinion, is, is finding unique and innovative solutions, as I've mentioned, or uh, finding other risk partners 
to actually participate with, while on the uh, while on the other end, looking at your internal processes, how you can automate and digitize those to reduce the cost base, and also looking at your capital, uh, looking at your balance sheet, understanding your risk a bit better, speaking closely with your regulators to say, look, uh, we want to, to participate in growing a particular SME, let's say agri, uh, agriculture. So we want to spend a little bit on the agri sector. We are understanding the risk profile to be like this. This is how we want, we're thinking about growing. Do you support and can we go ahead and can we make some adjustments to the model? You have to be open to understanding some levels of improvement internally. Because let's be fair, let's be, let's be frank, 80% of businesses on the continent is SME. That's a big number. So unless we solve the problems both internally and externally, um, I, I, I suspect we will not do justice to this sector that is quite pivotal on the continent for our growth ambitions. And you've led, you've led us sort of neatly on there to talking then about some of the solutions um, coming up through the market. I mean, you know, in lots of ways, this is really a question of providing liquidity and it's a question of um, bringing unbanked businesses into the formal finance sector and sort of and really providing the basis for, for them to grow. And that's, you know, the backbone of, um, of economic growth. So from, from your perspective um, within ABSA, how are you looking at using some of the new technologies that are coming through, digitalizing your processes, changing how you interact with small businesses? How are you, how are you seeing the digital landscape improving your ability to engage with those small businesses? Uh, it's, it's, it's a question that we, we debate and argue uh, on a daily basis uh, now. And um, I always start my debate, my part of the debate, that is, with um, uh, the point that says, you know, our customers, uh, uh, there was a time when customers would ask me to give them a, uh, you know, Give me, give me a set of your products and your pricing. Uh, but we are seeing a complete change in our customers. Our customers are actually focused on the experience. What is the banking experience at APSA? Not give me a list of products and I'm going to compare you with the other 10 banks and then compare the pricing. And the one with the product and the price I want is the one I go for. That world is changing quite rapidly. And the, and the, and the best example I, I give is, you know, you and I, when we used to travel back in the day, how you booked your flight, how you booked your hotel, how you booked your car rental, as well as the experiences of things that you are doing wherever you are, would be four different things. And some we were over the telephone, then we'll be email, then we'll be online, then you have to go to a kiosk. Today, you and I just do one thing, and we do it on one application, it was on one platform, right? So I can actually do the whole thing after selecting where I want to go and then which hotel I want to stay, once I click pay, one payment facilitates the entire process. Customers are having the exact same expectation in the banking sector. Um, and they're expecting to see a lot more integration of services and a seamless experience. So, you know, back in the day when you and I needed to make an international payment. You come with a set of documentation that the bank will say, you know, what they're looking for. And then you will submit that and then give a debit account and all sorts of things. And then three days later, hopefully your money makes it to the other end. Between the submission of the papers and the money sitting with the beneficiary, you have no sight what's going on. 
Today, our clients are saying, actually, at the click of a button, I want to be able to select my rate that I want, debit account, credit account. You already have all my other details. I can fill in a little bit more details that you want. And then I click pay. I expect an instant payment on the other end. And I want to see the payment flow. I'll say instant, I'll say near instant, near instant payment. And I want to see what's happening through the transaction at every stage until it's reached the beneficiary. And I want the successful receipt on the beneficiary side to say the money is now set into the customer's account. But this whole thing must be one. What sits behind that clearly is regulation, it's FX requirements, is many other compliance elements that clients no longer want to be uh, burdened with. That entire process must be completely seamless. Uh, maybe it might, it might come across as a threat, but it, it's, it's meant in, in, in a good way. Um, we are all investing in um, digital onboarding solutions, which means, uh, Eleanor, you can onboard yourself with the next bank in a couple of seconds. So if you are unwilling to invest in making sure that your experiences are amazing to your customers, they'll just simply, within a matter of seconds, move. So that to me is what I'm seeing as a massive shift uh, on the customer side. And that's starting to drive how we as banks are starting to integrate and build our capabilities. And maybe if I can uh, maybe tackle maybe four key things that I see as a requirement for winning uh, in, in, in the digital space. I, I think we have to make sure that as financial institutions, our channels are integrated, right? If I choose for whatever reason, I don't know why I would do it, but if I would choose to go to the branch to do something, uh, to maybe telephone or maybe mobile or ATM, that entire experience must be consistent. The entire thing must be integrated in such a way that whatever I do on one platform feeds across the chain. So that's the first thing that's quite important around winning. Um, agile ways of banking is important. There's a second point. The ability to uh, look at uh, new opportunities scale them up quickly, and if they work, scale them even more. If they don't work, scale them down quite quickly to make sure that, uh, one, you can take advantage of, of opportunities, but you're building a business that can rapidly change because you and I cannot predict with 100% accuracy some of the key things that will be driving business models in five years' time from now, right? So it means you need to be able to be agile to cater for some of the things we may have missed along the way. The third is API capability. Uh, I think 70% of, um, of uh, banks are implementing some form of API platforms, uh, but it enables uh, the financial uh, sector to integrate with other sectors to make those processes seamless. So for instance, uh, you know, uh, if you look at Airbnb or uh, um, um, Uber, for instance, none of us ever think about the payment layer. You're all thinking about what it is you're trying to order to eat or Uber Eats or, you know, your holiday experience. We never actually think about the payment layer because it has been removed from the visible side of the, the buyer, right? 
Uh, and to do that, there are some capabilities integration points you need to build uh, with all these other organizations that are growing. So API capability becomes an important part. That's quite important. And last but not least is the ability to make data-led decisions. So the investment in data is quite, quite important uh, to help you to run your business efficiently, to help us as banks to run our business efficiently, to increase our level of profitability, and actually, most importantly, to make sure that we're exciting our customers as part of the experience. We spoke earlier on about the importance of starting to deploy data and data capability in understanding of risk. That makes customers excited because you can actually start investing in them. That increases your profitability because you have an understanding of risk and therefore can price appropriately uh, for that particular risk. That also helps you to run your business more efficiently. One, you can start making decisions within an hour. You can imagine, um, you know, we maybe trade loan application might have taken three or four days back in the day to try and process. Right now, there's an expectation of same day, but very soon, same day will not be good enough. It'll be an hour. And the only way you achieve an efficient operations through the data, making the right decision to improve your profitability and finally exciting your customers. So those are the key four things that I think, I think it's quite important to mention as key investment areas I'm seeing on the digital landscape. And then so as ABSA then, when, when you're looking at that and you're looking at how you're going to navigate the digital landscape and how you're going to uh, be agile and how you're going to integrate with, with the other solutions that, that people are using, are you looking, do you look to partner with fintechs at all or other technology-driven companies? Is it Do you see that as a collaborative opportunity or do you see them as a sort of Challenger financial provider? Everything and all above. <laughs> Look, I think fintechs are an important part of the financial ecosystem, specifically the digital ecosystem. It makes no sense for a financial organization to not see the opportunity of a lucrative partnership. So I think for us as an organization, we see an opportunity to partner. Here's an interesting number. Uh, fintechs in Africa uh, were able to increase their funding um, or capital raising by 35% last year at a, at a time of a global pandemic. That 35% is about a billion dollars. Two fintechs that were quite instrumental as Flutterwave uh, in raising quite a lot of money and then Paystack, both interestingly from Nigeria. And for me, you have to understand that fintechs are growing at a rapid scale, solving a lot of key challenges, understanding friction points, and improving for those friction points. Um, you have an opportunity to partner with someone who can leverage your scale, who can leverage your understanding of risk, your understanding of compliance, and the networks you've built. And through that process, they grow and you grow. I, I would struggle to understand the case that says we should only see them as uh, competitors. We should see them as competitors in some instances, but also as partners in others. And I suppose another aspect really to how quickly the financial environment is evolving is that regulation also struggles to keep up with, with the changes. And so, you know, you as a bank will not be sort of seen the same as a fintech. And then you've also got sort of digital currencies coming into, into play. and. Uh, 
you know, some some people say it's almost a bit like the Wild West um, with some of, you know, how, how do you regulate for these um, for these new developments? So it's curious to get really to get your view on that as a as a traditional and established bank, um, you know, and so you've got very clear regulation that's been built over many, many years that you have to comply with. What's your view of how the regulations evolving on some of that fintech and some of that digital stuff? Yeah, no, I like your wild, wild west uh, example. I'm going to steal it, uh, if you don't mind. Um, look, I, I think you're right. And sometimes um, even I have found myself being a little bit emotional about how sometimes I'm regulated on certain aspects. And then I, I see a fintech on the other end just going about doing something, right? And how perhaps the, the regulator or the regulators felt because of the way in which the fintech is incorporated, it does not sit in the ambit of what they are responsible for. But obviously all those views are changing. So you're right. It has been a gradual appreciation of, of, of the risk. Uh, and I, I like the, your point around cryptocurrencies. I think the Bank of England said something interesting. I was reading it uh, the other day to say that um, five years ago, uh, crypto assets were worth about uh, $16 billion, one six. Today, that number is $2.3 trillion. It's a massive jump, right? Uh, and just to put the number in context, it's about 1% of the financial global financial system, 1%. Still, it's $2.3 trillion. But let me kind of give you a different perspective on that. And I, and, I, and I liked the deputy governor of the, of the Bank of England's take. His viewers, uh, during subprime uh, issue in 2008 that led to the financial crisis of 2008, the total debt was $1.3 trillion. Cryptocurrency assets today are worth $2.3 trillion. So they're worth a lot more than what led to um, uh, and what created a big uh, financial challenge across the globe. So I do think that reflecting, make, drawing those, um, those comparisons, I think regulators will start to think about how to increase oversight reviews and making sure that there's some level of compliance without stifling a growing industry. The word without is, is a bit ambitious, but I think it's also an opportunity for us as financial institutions to see where do we play? Because there are certain things that we have that we know that we know we are good at that can enable some of these organizations playing in cryptocurrencies. How do we participate? How do we help grow and make sure that we can grow, be part of the growth engine? Because you can't, you can't ignore a $2.3 trillion cryptocurrency as a bank. You can't ignore it. Now, you know, we, we have really been talking about the future quite a lot, really, in, the, in this conversation, but I do always like to sort of towards the end to sort of wrap up by um, by asking guests to sort of to look, if they're projecting forwards at the African investment landscape or in your own sector in financial services. Um, what are the sort of key trends that you're seeing that make you feel excited about the next sort of five to 10 years? You know, what is it that sort of gets you, um, gets you up in the morning and gets you excited about, about Africa's growth prospects um, and the opportunity really to, 
to widen the benefits of economic growth across the continent to include more people in that? Hmm, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I'll start first by kind of highlighting the four things that I mentioned earlier um, around uh, platform integration, uh, making sure that you offer one solution as a bank with multiple touch points, one platform with multiple touch points. I talked about uh, building agile banking solutions. I talked about API capability, and I talked about data. That world alone, the digital world and how it's evolving, it's very exciting for me because we are able to do things quicker, cheaper, uh, and also smarter. I talk to fintechs probably now on a daily basis. Three years ago, it was maybe every quarter. So my ideas about growth as a, as, as a, as a transactional banker are also changing. Before, I'd be looking at um, you know, a particular corporate customer to try and bring them onto the books and grow. But now, actually, a fintech is now also my customer. A telco is now also my customer in a different way because they are facilitating mobile payment capability, creation of wallets, and many other different ideas. So now I can play a different role. I can play a treasury role in a scenario like that, help funding um, um, some of the transactions that they want to do on a daily or hourly or even on a permanent basis. You're seeing a lot of growth in the payments world. It's quite exciting. The cross-border payments, specifically remittance as well. There's so much change in that space. It's quite explosive. It's quite exciting. But most importantly, the, the opportunity to scale the business, to find an opportunity and scale it quickly. Ha! Ah, the, the, the rapid change in that space is amazing. It's actually exciting for me because... You can build a business from nothing to being what now they're calling them unicorns in a very short space of time. Before it would take years, take decades to get to that point. Now, four years, you're in. The quality of the investments that are coming through is what's like keeping me awake at night and, uh, and getting me up in the morning to your point. Because I have the ability to make meaningful changes uh, in the communities that uh, I operate in, in the communities that I serve, I'm able to make a meaningful change in my lifetime. I can start something and finish it within a very short space of time. So I'm, I'm quite excited about, as you can see, I'm very emotive about this one, but I'm quite excited about um, what I'm seeing in front of me. I do think that uh, the model of banking will change so much that in 20, 30 years' time, we'll sit back and laugh at, do you remember when we, you know, but those things are going to be a function of the investments that we're putting to the table today. So I'm very excited. Oh, fantastic. Thanks Thanks so much for coming on and speaking and speaking with Gay. Really interesting to hear your thoughts. Thank you, Anna, and thank you for inviting me. Cheers.